You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 50 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Division 7A is an anti-avoidance provision only applying to private companies, and it is probably one of the most common issues we run into when working with private companies. Peter Adams of Augmenta is a popular tax trainer and presenter, and when you listen to the next three episodes, you will hear why. Peter kindly offered to walk us through the three areas of Division 7A, loans, payments, and debt forgiveness. Let's start with Division 7A loans today. Here's Peter. Well, welcome to our Division 7A series, folks. Uh, we're talking about the mechanics of Division 7A in particular. In the first instalment of our series, we'll explore Division 7A in the context of private company loans. Now, Division 7A itself commenced uh, life in our tax code uh, with effect from 4 December 1997. Um, there was a predecessor provision to Division 7A, the old section 108 of the 1936 Act. Uh, that had been repealed and replaced by Division 7A. The only reason really was that section 108 was perceived to be deficient uh, in challenging the stripping out of profits by associated persons out of private companies uh, in that it didn't extend itself to also payments and forgiven debts which, of course, Division 7A does, because uh, with effect from 4 December 1997, Division 7A is the prevailing provision uh, that serves as an integrity provision to counter against um, loans or payments or forgiven debts out of private companies to shareholders and associated persons. And, of course, the key sanctioning effect in Division 7A uh, is essentially uh, to treat any loan, any payment, any forgiven debt out of a private company as an unfranked dividend in the hands of the recipient. Now, the way I like to analyse and try and identify a Division 7A risk and quantify that risk is to go through a series of questions and by going through that series of questions, I'm able to identify and quantify uh, the extent of my Division 7A risk. So I think in our discussion today, as we talk about Division 7A and loans, uh, we'll follow that same pathway in trying to extrapolate the key components of what triggers a risk within Division 7A. So in essence, the first question, as you would expect, would be, what is a loan for Division 7A purposes? Now, loan is specifically defined in Division 7A. And the definitional framework of loan for Division 7A purposes is that it's an advance of money, a provision of credit, and any other form of financial accommodation. It also extends itself to say, well, if it's a payment of an amount for another person where there is some sort of express or implied obligation to repay that amount, there'll be a loan for Division 7A purposes. And anything which is in substance alone, anything which you and I think is a loan, would be a loan 
for Division 7A purposes. So the scope of the definitional platform for the, for loan in the context of Division 7A is very, very wide. And of course, as we'll see in a minute, it doesn't just include loans directly to shareholders or associates of shareholders, but it also includes loans to interposed entities and in turn loans from those interposed entities to what we call the target entity, which is either the shareholder or the associate of the shareholder. But that's the definitional scope of a loan. So our first question really is, do we have a loan? And as you can see, it's a very wide ambit of what constitutes a loan for Division 7A purposes. Our second question, which follows on from whether there is an existing loan, and we normally see this quite uh, easily, if it's documented right, uh, in terms of the accounts, we can see that there's a debit loan accounted for out of the company to uh, a shareholder or an associate or some other party. Um, and of course, if it's documented of such, that's a clear indicator that it is a loan. But the trigger point for Division 7A is as to who is the recipient of the loan. And the key recipient of the loan to trigger Division 7A would have to be a shareholder of that company out of which the loan emanates. Uh, shareholder um, is, of course, someone on the member register of that company noted and recorded as a shareholder. So if that debit loan that's recorded on the balance sheet of the company has a counterparty on the other side, that is a person that's a shareholder of that company, uh, then you have a Division 7A trigger. Now, uh, you might say, does the person have to be a current shareholder for the loan to trigger Division 7A? No, Division 7A extends itself. If the loan is made to a person who had been a shareholder and was made to that person as a result of them having been a shareholder. So it can also apply to what we would call past shareholders. Point of note, if it is to a shareholder, you've got a Division 7A trigger. But only past or present shareholders, not future shareholders. Not future shareholders uh, are included within the scope. Absolutely correct. Um, technically, it could be an associate at that point and therefore perhaps could come in under that guise. Uh, but yeah, it's specifically extended um, to uh, current shareholders um, and past shareholders only in the context where you could say that the loan was made to them in the context that they had been a shareholder. If you are able to put forward a different proposition, even though they had been a shareholder, it may not actually fall within the scope of Division 7. Okay. The next element of discussing what types of loans would trigger Division 7A is we now understand if we make a loan directly to a shareholder of that company, we've got a problem that we've got to deal with. The second aspect of that is what if this private company doesn't actually make a loan directly to the shareholder, but instead makes the loan to another entity who's unrelated to the shareholder? And so therefore, that loan in itself wouldn't trigger Division 7A. But that second entity once it receives the loan funds from the first company, then passes on that cash to the shareholder of that first company. 
does that now trigger Division 7A? And of course, the short answer is yes, it does. Because it would be so easy to circumvent the effect of Division 7A if that were not true. Yes, because it's just an interposed entity. Absolutely. Uh, It's just really a conduit for that flow of funds. And so Division 7A does attack that type of structure. And so how does it do it? Because if the loan goes directly from the first company to the shareholder, then what Division 7A does is to say, because that loan went to a shareholder of that company, we'll deem that loan not to be a loan, but to be an unfranked dividend. And that's how it works mechanically. Now, you can fix that. And we'll talk about how we fix that. But that's the effect of Division 7A. But if the loan doesn't go to the shareholder directly, but instead goes to an interposed entity and thereafter ends up in the hands of the shareholder, how does Division 7A make itself work? Well, what it does, it says, we will treat the second loan from the interposed entity as a loan as if it was directly from the company to the shareholder. And that's how it makes itself work. So it treats that second loan from the interposed entity to the target shareholder as if it was a loan directly from the first primary entity to the shareholder. And so it almost creates a double fiction because Division 7A is a fictional regime. It says something that you call a loan, we won't treat as a loan. We'll treat it as a deemed dividend. Now, to make itself work in this interposed entity scenario, it needs to create a double fiction. So it needs to say the loan from the second interposed entity to the target shareholder, that loan is deemed to be a loan between the primary company and the shareholder. And that deemed loan will translate itself to a deemed dividend. So a double fiction to make itself work mechanically. But it does capture a scenario where you have interposed entities. And that interposed entity can either be a company, I've used a company in my example, but it could also be a trust. So when the loan goes from the primary company to an interposed trust and from there as a secondary flow out of funds into the hands of the shareholder of the first company, we have a problem that we need to fix. Okay, And we'll talk about how we fix that a little bit later on. But that is what I call the second model of Division 7A's operation. The first model is where the loan goes directly from private company to the shareholder. The second model is where the loan goes from the private company to the interposed entity and from the interposed entity to the target shareholder. That's model two. Then we also have model three. Division 7A only has three models. And so when we look and try and identify where we have a Division 7A risk, we look at it in the context of these three models. If these three models and the elements of these three models are not present, we don't have a Division 7A problem. So we look in the context of these three models. So we've explored Model 1 and Model 2. Model 1, once again, to repeat, is where the loan went directly from a private company to the target shareholder. Model 2 is where you had a loan first from the tar- from the primary company to the interposed entity, and from the interposed entity to the target shareholder. Model three is also an interposed entity type structure, but a little bit different from model two, 
Because under Model 2, you had two actual loans. A loans from the private company to the interposed entity and a second loan from the interposed entity to the shareholder of the first company. So you had two loans. That was the trigger point for Division 7A under Model 2. Under Model 3, you don't have two loans. What do you have under Model 3? Well, under Model 2, I explained earlier that your interposed entity can either be a company or it could be a trust. Under Model 3, your interposed entity can only be a trust. And so the second point of difference between Model 3 and Model 2 is that there's no actual loan between the private company and the interposed trust. What there actually is, is this relationship. The primary company is actually a beneficiary of the interposed trust. The interposed trust would declare a distribution to the corporate beneficiary, which is the primary company, but does not pass on the cash to that company. You have exactly right an unpaid present entitlement, AUP. And so this, of course, in terms of tax planning, might on the face of it seem like a very clever strategy because we're using the framework of trust taxation to get some sort of tax-advantaged outcome, which is allowed for under the law. Uh, because under trust taxation, to shift a taxing point out of the trust, on the income of the trust, to a recipient beneficiary, the cash does not need to follow. All that needs to happen is that the trustee of that trust needs to declare a distribution to that particular beneficiary. That creates a present entitlement in the hands of the beneficiary to that income. And that's enough to shift the taxing point into the hands of the beneficiary. And so that's exactly what's happening here. The trust declares a distribution to this corporate beneficiary, the company, but doesn't pay the cash. But yet, by declaring the distribution, shifts the tax liability on the trust income to the corporate beneficiary. And of course, we know that the company tax rate uh, at 30%, and for some companies now, 27.5%, could be a lot more concessional than the high marginal individual rates that someone might incur. So this is a useful strategy in itself, and in itself, it doesn't trigger Division 7A. But that cash that hasn't been paid to the corporate beneficiary of the company, that's still sitting in the trust, doesn't remain in the trust, What the trust then does is to pass on that cash as a loan to the shareholder of the first company, which is the corporate beneficiary, of course, of that trust. So what's happening here? Well, this is exactly what Division 7 is designed to counter. Cash that belongs to a private company has found its way into the hands of the shareholder of that company in the form of a loan coming out of the interposed trust. So in a way, the effect is almost similar to Model 2. 
And so this is our Model 3, where you have the combination of a UP to a corporate beneficiary and a loan of cash representing the UP out of the trust to the shareholder of that company. Triggers Division 7. So if the loan was to the company, then it would be fine. It's yeah. only if the loan is to the shareholder. Correct. Absolutely. And so this is part of what we need to identify when we look at the private company's balance sheet. We might see on the balance sheet that there's a loan out of that private, an actual loan, out of that private company to another entity that's not a shareholder of that company, nor is it an associate of a shareholder. And so we might be inclined to say there's no Division 7 problem. But we still have to ask, where does the cash go from there? And if the cash goes from there into the hands of the shareholder of that company, we have a problem. And so we have to extend our inquiry beyond what we see perhaps on just that company's balance sheet to be able to identify whether we have a Division 7 or Similarly, we might have a company that has a receivable on its books, which is a UPE from a trust. And we might say, if we just look at that in isolation, we don't have a problem. But we still have to ask, where's that cash that that company is entitled to? Where has it ended up? And if it's ended up in the hands of the shareholder of that private company, we'll still have a problem. We need to ask for the accounts of the trust to see Correct. whether... That cash. Absolutely. And maybe as a practical measure, um, there would be many accountants that would say, well, we don't deal with that side of things. We only see this side. So we wouldn't know. Well, really, the shareholder that you represent in the first primary company uh, would have to be posed that question. You would have to say to that shareholder, did you receive any cash from that trust? Because you still deal with that side of the equation, even though you don't necessarily deal with the accounts of the trust. But it's part of the inquiry to identify whether you have a Division 7A issue yeah, or not. And, and it could especially be an issue if the accountant only does the accounts Correct. for the company. Absolutely. And the accounts for the trust are done by somebody else. Absolutely. But as an accountant, um, typically what I see in practice is you might only look after the company and the shareholder of that company. So because you look after both the company and the shareholder, the liability comes home to the shareholder if there's a Division 7A risk. So you would have to pose the question to that shareholder and ask and say to the shareholder, well, we see a counterparty on the balance sheet of the company, that counterparty being either another company or another trust. Um, any cash that that company is entitled to Where has that gone? Has that come into your hands at any point? Has part of it come into your hands? Because that's the trigger point. So what we know out of these three models is that legislatively, these are the only three models that trigger Division 7A. Do you often see Model 3, the business is actually running through a trust? And then any business profits? Yeah, that's... Um, issue? Uh, well, more recently that has become, and I say more recently, but for a number of years, that has become quite commonplace uh, to use the trust as a trading vehicle. Uh, and they, of course, of course, use the benefit of the reduced corporate tax rate uh, by using the company as a bucket, as it were, for distributions of trading profits from the trust. Now, that in itself is not an issue. 
Um, that's allowed. That's within the scope of the law. But there's a consequence for Division 7A purposes if that cash doesn't actually flow to the company. But instead, it flows through a shareholder of that company. So if we think about these three models, um, the model, model one is once again where the loan goes directly to the shareholder. Model two is where you have an actual loan from the private company to an interposed entity and from the interposed entity another loan to a shareholder of that first private company. Model three is where um, the interposed entity has to be a trust, but there is no actual loan between the private company and that trust. Instead, the trust declares a distribution to the private company in the form of an unpaid present entitlement, but the cash that represents that UP, that unpaid present entitlement, is then given by the trust as a loan to the shareholder of the first company. Those are your three things that you look at to try and identify whether you have a Division 7A risk. Now, you might say, well, Peter, you've been talking about loans to shareholders and you've also been talking about uh, interposed entity structures where the cash ends up in the hands of the shareholder. What if I don't make the loan to the shareholder? What if I make the loan to a spouse of the shareholder? Does the Vision 7A attack that? Well, the short answer is yes, of course it does. The scope of application for Division 7A is that it applies to both shareholders and associates of shareholders. Now, there's a very interesting dynamic here in how Division 7A works in this context because we know that the sanctioning effect of Division 7A, if there's a loan to a shareholder, then that loan will be treated as an unfranked dividend. Now, you can fix that, and we'll talk about how we fix that, but this is the end outcome of Division 7A if you don't fix it. But what if the loan is to the associate and we have an unfranked dividend? Where do we pick that unfranked dividend up? Do we pick it up in the hands of the shareholder or do we pick it up in the hands of the associate? Now, you would be forgiven to suggest that that loan that's now an unfranked dividend would be picked up in the hands of the shareholder. Because you think logically you can only have dividends to shareholders. But this is not how Division 7A works. Division 7A actually picks up the loan as an unfranked dividend in the hands of the recipient of that loan. Even if that recipient be the associate of the shareholder. Not a shareholder, himself or herself. So it picks it up in the hands of the associate. So then you say, well, how can that be? Well, remember, Division 7A is not a real dividend, the dividend that emanates. It's a fictional deemed dividend. So it can make something like this happen. So when you do have a result like an unfranked deemed dividend, you have to pick it up in the return, the tax return of the associate, okay, under the dividend section of being an unfranked dividend. Um, that can throw up some planning opportunities because the shareholder might be on a very high level of income with a high marginal rate. But if you strip out cash out of that company, not in the hands of the shareholder, but in the hands of the associate, who might well be a non-working spouse. And you might pull out, let's say, a $20,000 loan of cash out of the private company to that associate. Well, the resulting effect might well be that you have an unfranked deemed dividend 
but there's no tax to pay as a result of the tax profile of that associate. So this is an interesting dynamic in terms of how Division 7A works. Yeah, but so it can actually work to the advantage of the tax It could, pay. depending on the profile of the parties involved. Mm-hmm. Yes, it could actually work out. And some people say, well, if I specifically plan for this to happen, could they say it's a tax avoidance scheme now? Um, well, that would be very hard for the ATO to argue, I would suggest, because Division 7A is the anti-avoidance regime. So I'm saying in the context of Division 7A, I have breached Division 7A. So therefore, what's the consequence? What's my penalty? Well, you have to put that loan amount as the unfranked dividend in your tax return and bear tax on it. Well, okay, I will do that. I'll put the $20,000 in my tax return. But just so turns out that there's no tax liability ascribed to it at the end of the day. But so the, it could have that effect. Yeah. The deemed dividend, though, has two penalties. The one is that it is a dividend that one has to pay tax on, or not, yes. depending on um, yes. the, the spouse or, or who receives it. But the other penalty is that the dividend is not frankable. Yes. So it means that we have franking credits forever. Yes. Locked in the... Uh, yeah, well, you can't use it, because, but you can't use it anyway because it's not actually a real dividend yes so it's it's um it's one of those dividends that's a deemed dividend it's fictional and you're right the penalty effect is that it's absolutely unfranked okay and so therefore it's almost a double whammy there used to be a triple whammy housed within division 7a so you had the outcome that it's an unfranked deemed dividend for the recipient but you also had the fact previously that the company's franking account would be hit with a franking debit. Okay. So there was a pin that's no longer part of the legislative regime. So that was repealed. So you only have the sanctioning effect on the recipient of the loan. No longer is there a penalty effect on the company itself. Okay, but so there are still two sanctioning effects. One yes. is that tax is paid on the uh, deemed dividend and the other one is that it's unfranked so the which so the, means full tax is incurred exactly but it also means that the company never can frank well this it's, cash again. It's, it's stuck with that franking yeah. credits because the view is that what you've done illegitimately is to strip out profits out of this company in not through the normal mechanism because the normal mechanism would be you'd pay it after after-tax dividend out of the company to the shareholder, frank it to the required degree. And if the shareholders at the highest marginal rate, at least they still get franking credits uh, or imputation credits to the extent that the company had borne tax on that profit. You lose all of that, absolutely. So it is a very, very strong deterrent for not engaging in this type of transaction. Um, and of course, you might then say to me, well, Peter, we have stripped out cash out of this company by way of a loan. And so you're telling me now, but just because we've done that, we have a problem. Yes, you do have a problem. But just like most problems, there's often a fix if it is an inadvertent result of a commercial transaction. And so we'll talk about those fixes. Um, those fixes um, would be open to you, as we'll see a little bit later on, under each of the three models that we talked about. 
that are the trigger models for Division 7A. But something that would be remiss of us not to mention is that in 2010, there was a critical development uh, within the regulatory framework around Division 7A. Now, the legislative models for Division 7A are simply those three models as I had enunciated it. But in 2010, the ATO took a particular view or interpretation on something that is aligned with Model 3. Now, if you remember, Model 3 is the one where we have an interposed trust with a UPE to a corporate beneficiary and the cash flows out of that trust to the shareholder of that first company. So I say to myself, well, if I declare UPE to a private company, the only Division 7A trigger point is going to be if that cash goes to a shareholder of that company. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep the cash in the trust. And if I pass it out, I'm going to make sure I don't pass it to a shareholder or an associate or a shareholder. So if I don't have that second link, I don't have a Division 7A problem. And so we believed for many years. Now remember, Division 7A came in 4 December 1997. Uh, until 2009, when the ACO issued a ruling, um, um, 2010-3, taxation ruling TR 2010-3, up until then, uh, there was a common perception and, and with, not without basis, not without merit, because this is how we thought the law worked. And the ACO never challenged, challenged that as being a different proposition. Um, but in 2010, with their ruling 2010-3, they came out with this view, that even if the cash that represents the UPE in the trust is not actually paid out as a loan to the shareholder, you may still have a problem. How and why? Well, what they suggested potentially could still be a problem is that if the shareholder in the private company is not just a shareholder of the private company, but that shareholder himself or herself is also a beneficiary under that very same trust that declares the UPE to the company. If that is true, then that shareholder and the trust are what we call associates. So we talked a little bit earlier about the concept of associate, that Division 7A applies itself to instances not just where loans go to shareholders, but where it also goes to associates. And in my example, I used a family member as an associate, a spouse. But associate as a concept actually stands a lot further than just individuals or people. It would include also a trust where the individual or associate of that individual benefits under that trust. So, in fact, a beneficiary of a trust makes that beneficiary an associate of the trust and the trust an associate of that person. So where we have a scenario where the shareholder of the private company is not just shareholder of the private company, but also a beneficiary of the trust that has declared a distribution to that company, UPE, then it makes that shareholder an associate of that trust. And then we say, well, what's the UPE really? Well, the UPE is a declaration of an entitlement 
to the company, but that hasn't been paid to the company. How would the company normally book this entitlement? Well, it would book it as a receivable. So in effect, the company is treating it as a loan that it's making to the trust because the trust owes it that cash. And so if you, in truth, say the UPE is a loan by the private company to the trust, who is the loan to? Well, it's a loan to an associate of the shareholder. In fact, this is not a new model. Yatio suggests this is actually model one. You have a direct loan from the private company to an associate of the shareholder. And of course, you would have to then think about fixing this element of Division 7A in the same way you would normally fix it. Um, but it does create a real problem. Of course, as soon as that cash is paid to the company as a paid entitlement, the whole UPE concept falls away. But as long as it remains a UPE, you've got this risk. The only break in this risk is if you can say, well, the shareholder is not a beneficiary of that trust, so we don't have a problem. So the only time we could have a problem is if that cash actually comes out of the trust into the beneficiary's hands or the shareholder's hands, I should say. Okay. Um, so it is one of those things that caused much consternation in the marketplace because it is not a change to the law itself. It's the ATO taking a different slant in its interpretation of Division 7A. And that's probably what had been happening a lot. Of course, yes, indeed, because as we explored earlier, um, the whole use of a corporate beneficiary uh, became commonplace. Um, and so uh, the view within the ATO is, well, if the cash doesn't actually go to that company, it's really booked in the books of a company as a loan that it's making to the trust. And so if that's true, and it is actually now a loan because the cash never comes out, the company is allowing the trust to use its cash. And remember, this goes back to the definition of loan we talked up right at the beginning. We said any form of financial accommodation is a loan. So in truth, a UP in this context translates itself to a loan. And therefore, a loan being to an associate of the shareholder creates a normal Division 7A problem. So we've identified now the instances where Division 7A can give rise to problems. How do we fix this? With respect to loans. With respect to loans. So um, our focus, of course, in the first installment here is just to look at uh, Division 7A in the context of loans. There's the three other, the two other elements, which is the payments and the forgiven debts. But mechanically, the trigger points are largely similar. The sanctioning effect is largely similar. But we'll tease that out um, at another juncture. Um, but if we're just focusing on loans... How do we fix this problem where we have a loan now, uh, either under Model 1 direct loan or an indirect loan under Model 2 or Model 3? How do we fix it? Well, the easiest way to fix it, easiest way, is just pay the money back. Okay. Before the due date? Absolutely. So originally, before 2004, you had to actually pay it back by the end of the financial year in which the loan was made, so 32. Now, that became logistically very difficult, and the legislation was amended with effect from 2004 onwards to say that now you only need to repay the loan 
by the due date for lodgement of the company's return, which typically, if you have a 30 June um, um, 18 loan, you would only have to repay that by May 2019. So uh, there's a bit more concessional um, time frame there for you to actually repay that loan. And if you repay that loan, it won't be an unfranked deemed dividend for 30 June 18 in the tax return of that shareholder or associate, as the case may be. So then the thought comes into my mind to say, well, if I take out the loan for the year ending 30 June 18, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I'll take it $100,000, and all I have to do is pay it back by May 2019. So I still have use of that cash without any sanctioning effect, as long as I pay it back by May 2019. Come May 2019, I pay it back but then I take out another $100,000 loan and I keep rolling this thing every year. Never, ever Division 7A problem. Is that right? It is partially right because there is a integrity provision within Division 7A, Section 109R, that says this. If you take out a loan, Division 7A loan, and you repay that loan, but subsequent to that, you take out a same or similar loan, then there's capacity for the commissioner to disregard your repayment of the original loan. But they will not disregard it in this way if your repayment of the original loan is through funds that you acquire as an actual dividend or where you've used salary and wages to repay the original loan. So there is this integrity provision that stops this rolling effect or strategy that people would otherwise be able to employ. Okay. I see. So if you take out a bank loan for three days yes. to be able to pay back and then pay out the bank again. And then you take out another loan. Yes. Then um, then Division 7A could apply. Could, could apply. apply. Yes. But if it's a genuine repayment from profits that the company Correct, makes. Correct, yes. And you see the logic in this because yeah. they're saying if it's an actual dividend that you're using to repay, that would be taxable anyway mm-hmm. in your hands. Or if it's salary and wages that you're using to repay the, the loan, that would be taxable anyway. So there's no real leakage to the fiscus is the logic. Okay. Yeah. So, so yes, um, it is still though, if it is still though, in theory, capable of being done where you had repaid the original loan using those two streams of revenue to then subsequently take out another loan, okay? Uh, so you do have that um, flow of cash into your hands without any negative income uh, outcome um, as a result. Um, but it's just, it's, I normally make this point just to make people conscious of the fact that even though you have this repayment capacity by due date for lodgement of the return, it doesn't necessarily mean you have an open right to just keep rolling this over time and never have a Division 7A trigger because there is this integrity bit uh, within the heart of Division 7A. So easiest way, pay it back. I can't pay it back because the cash is gone. So how else do I fix this? Because I know this is a genuine Division 7A commercial loan. In other words, I'm not stripping out profits. This loan is subjected to a commercial interest rate 
uh, and it would be on the same terms if I didn't take the loan from the company, but I took out the loan from an unrelated third party. And so Division 7A recognises this. It says if it's a genuine commercial loan, then we won't treat that loan as an unfranked dividend. But there are some requirements. And the first requirement is that you need to encapsulate the loan in a written loan agreement. And that needs to be in place also by due date for lodgement of the return. And you need to subject the loan under the current legislative framework to a maximum term of seven years if the loan is unsecured or 25 years for secured loans against real property. And I think this requirement to be in writing is actually very generous because I think it says that it can be a clause in the constitution or it can just be in an email or it can just be in a letter. So that's quite generous, I think. It is generous in that it needs to have its framework governed by the constitution. But of course, you need to have a separate notification because they're separate loans every year. So you can't just say, well, there's that clause. So you need to also have a separate element to the governing clause in the Constitution to be able to do that. Uh, I'll talk a little bit later where that element may even be more relaxed um, uh, in the future. Um, but it's just about there being some evidence of a loan in place. That's really what, what the focus is on. Uh, and of course, in additional to the written loan requirement uh, and the term requirement of the loan, there's also that it must have ascribed to it a benchmark interest rate, which the ATO sets every year. Uh, for 30 June 17, 5.3%, now 2018, 5.25%. It's a moving target every year. But the benchmark interest rate would be, I guess, the key indicator that it is on commercial terms. And not only do you need to frame your loan in this way, you need to make actual minimum repayments on that loan for the term of the loan based on the prevailing benchmark interest rate every year. And there's a formula under Section 109N of the Division 7A framework that tells you how to work out that minimum repayment based on the prevailing interest rate. And of course, the formula throws up that part of the repayment comprises principal and part of the repayment comprises interest. And it's on this basis that you are able uh, to demonstrate that it's a genuine commercial loan. One of the other things to tease out about this aspect of Division 7A, let's say we've got a written loan agreement in place, benchmark interest rate has been applied. I've now made my minimum repayments for three years of the first seven years, seven years maximum term. In year four, my minimum repayment of $100,000 is not made. What happens then? Now, in the past also, Division 7A used to be more penalizing. It used to say that if you fall short in not making your minimum repayment for a particular year over the seven-year period, then the entire outstanding balance of the loan would be your unfrank deemed dividend. And of course, yeah, it's also now a little bit more concessional than it had been in the past. So now the only sanctioning effect is that that minimum repayment, which you haven't made, 
is an unframed deemed dividend. Absolutely. And it doesn't, you don't necessarily get a win out of this, uh, because some people uh, would operate under the mistaken belief that if my $100,000 that I haven't made as a minimum repayment now translates as an unframed dividend, then it reduces the balance of my loan. No, it doesn't. You can't get a win out of doing the wrong thing. So you still have the same balance, but you have an unframed dividend. Oh, I didn't okay? know that. I Absolutely. Afraid. So um, it doesn't give you a free ride for not doing the right thing. Um, it doesn't work like that. Um, but it is one of the ways uh, in which we can manage our Division 7 a risk if we can't repay the full loan by the due date for lodgement of the company's return relevant to the year in which the loan was made. We can set the loan on commercial terms, and that's typically what most accountants would suggest is what they do and what they suggest their clients do uh, to minimise their Division 7 a risk. In fact, negate their Division 7 a risk as long as they continue to make the required minimum repayments over the term of that loan. And that's typically the the main exclusion that we utilise in the marketplace other than actual repayment of the loan. Um, when the minimum repayment is not made, mm. before 2006, the entire loan became a deemed dividend. Correct. Then in 2006, it was changed Correct. to a lot more lenient approach. And only the shortfall is minimum Absolutely. dividend. Absolutely. Did that happen because there was a public outcry? Not necessarily. I don't think so. I don't, um, if I think back to that time, there was always a belief that Division 7A is this weapon of mass destruction in a tax sense. And so there was always this belief that... Um, even though it has this real penalty effect, there's a reason for it. There's a reason why it exists. And there was almost a reluctant acceptance in the marketplace by professionals and taxpayers to say, well, we understand why it's there. Um, and so even though you had some elements of um, objection to the extent of the penalty effect, um, for example, why should a company be penalized with a franking debit in its franking account when you already have a sanctioning effect on the shareholder? Now, we know that had changed. Um, so there was little, but not necessarily about this aspect. It was more about um, the fact that there were some definitional frameworks issue around, is a UPE actually a loan? How can you call it a loan? That's more where there were elements of objection. Um, I think there were question marks around um, not understanding that maybe the entire balance represents an unfranked dividend. Um, so, you know, I don't think there was a huge area of objection to say this is grossly unfair. Um, it, I think there was more of an acceptance as well. This is just the nature of the beast of Division 7A, and this is how it applies. It applies unfairly, but it's trying to sanction something uh, where someone is in breach of the law. Um, so when it came out, it was viewed as concessional, um, not as an expected or an expectation or as an entitlement. This is really how it should work. Uh, it was genuinely viewed as a concession. Um, and it is, um, I think, well, from where we came from, uh, to that extent it is. Um, so, and, and I think if you think about it equitably in an equity sense, um, you might have an instance where the taxpayer is a position to make those minimum repayments. But if this was a genuine commercial loan, 
People go through difficult times. They make their repayments on their um, bank loans, etc. Then they go through a difficult patch. Um, and there would normally be within uh, the financial sector an understanding. Um, and, you know, normally with banking operations where someone had been a diligent repayer of a loan and something happens in a particular year uh, where they may not be able to fully meet their obligations, there's often some element of compromise there. And I think this is where Division 7A came to the party, to recognise that, that we've already said this is a genuine commercial loan in the way you've structured it, you've diligently made your minimum repayments, but there's one particular year where you've fallen short. So all we're going to do is to say where you've fallen short, that will translate into an unfrank deemed dividend. If you kick on again from the next year, well, normal service resumes. Okay, So I think that's the right outcome. With the minimum um, payment, do we need to split it into principal and interest? Yes, that's the nature of the formula that the Division 7A dictates as to how you calculate it. So there's a specific formula. So it has your minimum repayment and it's um, comprised of both principal and interest. And I think the shortfall is only calculated on the principal part and not on the unpaid yes, interest part. Uh, uh, in, that, is, that is correct, yeah. Um, so, so the um, unpaid interest part basically gets ignored. It doesn't become part of the deemed dividend and it's also not added to the yeah, loan. The, the, and as I made the point earlier, the only thing to also be conscious of is you don't get a free ride on this. You're still short that repayment on the loan. So the balance of your loan doesn't come down. Okay, So you've got the penalty effect of the unfranked deemed dividend, but you still actually have to make that repayment. So that's also uh, something that people often forget that otherwise I could say to myself, well, I'm not going to make the minimum repayment for this year of $100,000. What's going to be the result? Well, I'm going to have an unfranked dividend in my tax return, but it still reduces my loan balance by 100000 So, you know, the only sanction effect is I've got an unfranked dividend tax liability. No, it actually has, um, if you will, almost a double effect. Yes, you have the unfranked dividend, but your load balance hasn't been reduced because you haven't actually made a minimum repayment. That's the problem. Okay. So if, if the minimum repayment was $100,000, $80,000 of that was principal, $20,000 of that was interest, if I only pay the $80,000 and I don't pay the interest, yeah. then that $20,000 doesn't actually become a deemed dividend. No, no, no. And it's not added to my no, no. loan. It's just based on the loan, yeah. So that means, in a way, taxpayers could get away with just paying the principal. Yeah, I, I hesitate to use the word get away uh, with anything, but there is a concessional effect in how the rules work, yes. Um, concession in the sense that um, it works exactly how it's intended to work because it's always just looking at the loan, okay? It's looking at the loan amount and it's trying to translate the loan amount into an unfranked deemed dividend. And that's how it normally works anyway. So its focus is on that. But it's saying that what you have is an outstanding loan balance. Uh, and if you haven't made your minimum repayment, well, then there's part of that loan balance, the principal balance, that you haven't met. So that part you still have to pay back. And there's still going to be interest on that when you actually pay that back. But there's no penalty effect on the shortfall. That's the interest component. It's only the the minimum repayment principal component that represents that, unfrankly. Okay. All right. The other side of the equation, which is actually quite an important bit 
of how Division 7A operates. Because then I say to myself, okay, I haven't made a loan agreement. I haven't paid it back. So that technically means if I take out a $100,000 loan that I haven't fixed, that the unfranked deemed dividend will be 100000 that I have to disclose in my tax return. And let's just talk about a direct loan to a shareholder. Um, and first point is, where do I put in my tax return? Because a lot of accountants don't even deal with this side of things because they normally fix it. So you don't get this result. But if I do get this result, where does it go? Well, it actually goes into the normal dividend section of the individual tax return because there's no deemed dividend section. So it goes into the normal dividend section. It just doesn't have any franking credits ascribed to it. But it sits under item 11 of the individual tax return. That's where it goes. So then I say to myself, well, okay, I've got a $100,000 loan. What amount do I put in this unfranked deemed dividend? Now, normally, logically, I'd say I won't put in 100000 as unfranked deemed dividend because that's the amount of the loan. But Division 7A doesn't quite work like that. And this is based on the normal operation of our tax law. If we think about the normal operation of our tax law and dividends in particular, is the fact that it's a dividend, is it that fact that makes it taxable? And the answer to that is no. A dividend is not in itself taxable. A dividend is taxable if the dividend is paid out of profits. So the definition of dividend in our law says it's any payment to a shareholder except an amount, except an amount. So there's two trigger sections here. There's the definitional section of what a dividend is. Then you have section 44, subsection 1, which says a dividend is only taxable if it's made out of profits. But then you say, well, what's a dividend first? Well, a dividend is any payment to a shareholder except a payment that's a return of capital. Okay. And so if it is a dividend, the next step is to say, well, if it is a dividend, is it a taxable dividend? Well, it's taxable if it comes out of profits. So we know that link exists. So Division 7A tries to follow that same dynamic. It says, well, you've stripped out cash out of the company. We have no right to treat the cash as a deemed dividend unless it's actually come out of profits. So it applies the same dynamic. But this is where it diverges from the norm. It says not that we won't treat it as a taxable dividend if it's not out of profits, but it doesn't use profits as a base at all. It uses a concept called distributable surplus. And distributable surplus is essentially a balance sheet concept. It has as its main component net assets of the company on balance sheet. And then it has some variables within it because it says you need to take off previous non-commercial loans, Division 7A loans that's sitting there on the balance sheet, non-commercial loans, the paid up amounts of those loans you take off. Um, the only other thing you take off that might be of note typically is paid up share value. So it's actually your net assets less your paid up share value. That's your distributable surplus. Now, if it's balance sheet, and I'm saying to myself, when I go and do these numbers, I've got a $100,000 loan here. But when I go to the balance sheet of that company for 30 June, I actually have a distributable surplus based on net assets minus paid up share value. 
of 50,000. So what does that mean? Well, I've got a $100,000 debit loan to the shareholder of that company. We haven't fixed the loan. We haven't paid it back. So it's now going to be an unfranked deemed dividend. But the unfranked deemed dividend can never be more than the company's distributable surplus. And in my case, the company's distributable surplus is only $50,000. So I've got $100,000 of cash flowing out as a loan to the shareholder, but he only puts in or has to put in only an unfranked dividend equal to the distributable surplus, which is only 50000 What happens to the other 50000 then? Because he's got $100,000 worth of cash in his pocket. No tax on the other 50000 Ever. Ever. And that's the important bit. Ever. The distributable surplus out is an absolute out. It doesn't matter that the next year your distributable surplus is $5 million. All that matters is what is the distributable surplus in the year the loan is made. And so this is a strategy point for accountants. As of the 30th of June in which the loan is made. So if I'm sitting there as an accountant, very often accountants will tell you they've picked up the Division 7A problem from the balance sheet already and they fixed it. And so all they did to fix it was to run around doing loan agreements. And they made minimum repayments on this 100000 that they now need to make the minimum repayments on. But I bet you if I put this proposition to my client and I say to my client, listen, we've got two options to fix this $100,000 loan problem in the context of Division 7A. We can do a loan agreement for $100,000. You then have to make minimum repayments on that plus the required interest for the next seven years. That's your one option. Second option, distributable surplus is only 50000 So you put 50000 in your tax return for this year and you never have to worry about this thing again. You just have to pay the tax on the 50000 But the other 50000 you get tax-free. Now, I would bet most clients in that situation would suggest maybe the second option is the preferred option. So this is... Um, something that the ATO had tried to revisit um, and there were some murmurings within Treasury to perhaps bring this back to a profit concept as is the case with a normal dividend and take it away from this balance sheet distributable surplus concept. That has never happened. And it's still there uh, as a basis for quantifying the actual deemed dividend that comes out of the making of the debit loan out of the private company to the shareholder. And so what I often say to accountants um, that I talk to is before we go around trying to put in loan agreements in place, see how low we can bring this number down because that might be a better outcome than having to do a loan agreement making minimum loan repayments for seven years. Um, so it's one of those strategies that uh, we are getting a little bit more tuned to exploring more uh, before we just go around um, um, doing loan agreements. One of the interesting things about this, of course, that accountants will ask is, well, what happens in the accounting sense? Because on the balance sheet, I still have a $100,000 loan. You're now telling me that that $100,000 loan is going to have a singular tax result, which is an unfranked dividend of 50000 So if it's no longer in the future going to be a Division 7A issue anymore, because this 
is how I decided to deal with it, it's still sitting on a balance sheet. Can I now get rid of it? Well, the difficulty you have is, and one of the aspects we'll talk about later is Division 7A and forgiven debts. So if you write off that loan as a forgiven debt, then it translates itself to an unfranked deemed dividend anyway, not as a loan anymore, as a forgiven debt. But the forgiven debt rules say this. It says it can only be an unfranked deemed dividend as a forgiven debt under Division 7A to the extent it was not already an unfranked deemed dividend as a loan. Now, how much of the 100000 was already an unfranked deemed dividend as a loan? Well, in my example, 50000 was. So that means I can at least write off 50000 The other 50000 I have to keep there. Okay. So this is how I need to manage that scenario. Um, but it does give you an option more so than trying to think simply in a box of doing loan agreements. It gives you a wider scope of managing your Division 7A risk. The um, tax forgiveness of those 50000 of course, is not a deductible expense. Correct. Absolutely. Um, and that's part of the problem. Uh, the only thing that it does throw up, it might throw up a capital loss for the company. It's not tax deductible. It's not a bad debt you can write off. Um, but you might be able to get a capital loss out of that for the company because the debt would be seen... Uh, of course, as an asset in the company. And so if you're right of that asset, you might trigger CGT event, C2, which is triggered when a intangible asset, like a debt or a right, is extinguished or expires or comes to an end or is surrendered. So that possibly the only, uh, if you want to call it a tax advantage, um, that's possibly the only thing you get. But that would be a fantastic outcome because you get the 50,000 tax-free because it's beyond the surplus. Correct. Plus, you might get a capital loss when you Correct. sell. Correct, correct. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, so where it becomes really useful is the company as in that same year capital gains that's flowing in. Because remember, capital losses can only be used against capital gains. So that's when it becomes really advantageous if you can structure it around and align the timelines for when one happens and when something else happens at the same time. Absolutely. So the point I made earlier as well, the second sanctioning effect that was historically in Division 7A, the fact that the company's franking account got hit with a franking debit, um, that ceased with effect from 1 July 2006. So we don't have that second sanctioning effect anymore. One of the questions that accountants do ask me, though, is what if the shareholder is not just a shareholder in the company, but also wears a hat as an employee of the company? They've now received a loan from that company. Isn't that also a loan fringe benefit? No. Unfortunately, the law gives us an out here, and it gives Division 7A precedence over fringe benefits tax. So if it is a Division 7A loan, it can translate itself to a loan fringe benefit for FPT purposes. So there is that carve-out. Technically, if we didn't have this specific carve-out, it could be both. Because if you think about the taxpayer, in a Division 7A sense, the taxpayer that's liable is the shareholder. If you think about FPT, the taxpayer there is not that person, 
It's actually the employer. And so we're dealing with two different taxes and two different taxpayers. So in theory, you could have a double whammy here, except that we have this carve-out. Okay. Is it possible to argue that the loan was made to that person in, its, in his or her capacity as an employee and not a shareholder and hence go for FBT? Not with loans. Okay. With loans, there's a specific priority given to Division 7A. Okay, so if okay. somebody is an employee and a shareholder, it's always Division 7A, yes. even if you argue it was actually made yes. to him or her as an yes. employee. And that's an important point to register with, where we make a loan specifically to someone that's both shareholder employee, Division 7A, supersedes Fridge Benefits Tax, always. Okay. So you don't have an election or choice element to it. Okay. Um, one of the things that we should also recognize as, um, as an, well, not an out, but um, something where we can avail ourselves of a commissioner's discretion to perhaps resist a deemed dividend outcome. And this is where something had happened inadvertently, um, was just a an honest mistake, if you will. Typically, what the ATO accepts as a basis for availing yourself is instances where we have these interposed entities. Typical to the example we said earlier, well, we didn't know that it went from there to there. Um, if we had known that, we would have fixed it then. So we didn't have a loan agreement in place, but if we had known, we would have had a loan agreement in place then. Can you, Mr. Commissioner, this is the basis of our question, can you, Mr. Commissioner, allow us to do a loan agreement now, even though we should have had one three years ago? We will work out what is the minimum repayments we should have paid for the past three years, pay that to the company, and continue to make the normal minimum repayments for the balance of the term. That's the basis of our question to the Commissioner. And I think this, um, to date, um, anecdotally, I think there's probably a well- uh, above 80% success rate on this. It's a private ruling type of process that you have to follow. But because it's a concession and a discretionary authority afforded under the law, if you are able to make the representation that it's an inadvertent error uh, or omission, um, then they will... Because it's a form of voluntary disclosure and you're making good on what you should have done. Um, so it's not like you're getting a free ride. It's not an amnesty of sorts. Um, so, so therefore, um, it is readily accepted by the ATO uh, if you satisfy the requirements that it is an inadvertent admission or omission, sorry, uh, or honest mistake. Um, so the, we should recognize that we do have this capacity under law because very often accountants come to me and they say to me, uh, Peter, we've got this new client and they've got debit loans everywhere. And the previous accountant didn't do loan agreements, didn't do any of that. All is not lost. We can sort of, through this channel, um, achieve some sort of remedy for, for that client. And I think one can apply for two different discretions from the commissioner. Yes. One is to still allow a loan agreement, even though we are past the, um, the lodgement date. And the other one, I think, is to treat it as a deemed dividend, but, but to make it a frankable dividend. That's a little bit different. That, that, um, that normally applies if it's actually a dividend or if there's a payment trigger for a dividend. I'll talk about that separately okay. when we talk about payments, not in the case of loans. 
So the only way we get an out in the case of loans is to say, well, we didn't follow the formalities. It's a genuine commercial loan, but we didn't follow the formalities. Can you give us the permission now to put it in place the way it should have been put in place? Um, because of our omission that was inadvertent. Um, and so that's what you can get out of it. Or you can alternatively say it was genuinely booked as a dividend, it was a dividend, and it should have been treated as a dividend. That's a little bit harder to get over the line. Uh, um, but under under the second trigger point for Division 7A, which is payments, there is a capacity to have the dividend as a frankable dividend. And I'll talk about that. It's a very specific instance um, where you can have that as an outcome because the sanctioning effect of Division 7A, if you trigger it, is that it's absolutely an unfranked deemed dividend. Otherwise, there's no penalty effect. Um, so I'll talk about when you can um, make it as a frankable outcome rather than unfrank. So just a few additional exclusions that exist under the division framework, division 7A framework for loans as to when a loan would not necessarily translate as an unfranked deemed dividend. A specific exclusion within the scope of division 7A is company to company loans. So a loan from one company to another company would not trigger a division 7A deemed dividend. Unless we have model two. Absolutely, or unless the loan, exactly right, comes from that second company to a shareholder of the first company. And which is why we can't stop the inquiry when we see on the balance sheet company to company loans. We need to ask where does the cash end up. And the second exclusion, and this is more of a non-duplication exclusion, it says if a loan is already assessable income under another provision of the Income Tax Act, then it can't be assessable income as a deemed dividend under Division 7A. So it's really more of a, uh, a non-duplication um, uh, section. Uh, the next one, um, which doesn't come up very often, but there is elements of being able to use it, particularly in a planning sense. And what it's basically saying is, if a loan is made in the ordinary course of business, and it's made on the same terms um, to a shareholder of that company or an associated person, that that loan would not translate into an unfranked deemed dividend if it's basically on the same arm's length terms as this company is making to its own customers. So really what we're looking at here is a company that fits this profile. The company is a finance house, a financier. And so it makes loans as a normal course of its business to its clientele. If it makes a loan of the same type under the same terms, arm's length terms, to a shareholder and associate, then that loan won't be an unfranked dividend. And there's logic there. Yeah, that makes sense. Well. So, for example, if we have, let's say we have NAP, National Australia yes. Bank, they make a loan to Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith happens to hold three NAP shares, mm. then it wouldn't fall under Division 7. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, well, not, NAB is probably a difficult example, but you're right in principle, uh, only because NAB might be viewed as a public company, not a private company. But you could have this know, scenario. Course, you're right, because Division 7A is only, only for private, private companies. Yes. Yes. But, but um, the other aspect of it where it could have relevance we see a lot of family groups, companies with family groups. Uh, you might have three operating companies. 
entities. And then you have one company that's the financier company of the group. So what that financing company does in the context of this corporate group, it's the one that finances the operations of the other companies. So really, that is the normal cause of its business. Do you see where we're going here? So that's where it can have relevance um, in terms of this exclusion. The other element that's a specific exclusion um, is a loan made in the course of winding up by a liquidator of the company. So if the liquidator has cash in that company as he's winding it up and he passes some of that cash as a loan to a shareholder, it's viewed as a loan made by the liquidator, not the company, which takes it outside the scope of Division 7A because Division 7A only focuses on the company loans. So that's also an exclusion. That makes sense. Uh, another exclusion is loans made by the company under the employee share scheme to employees that as a result are shareholders of the company. So this is obviously a common type of structure as well or arrangement uh, where the shareholders acquire shares in the company, but the company advances the funds to the employee to buy the shares in the company. So that would also be excluded. So that's some additional exclusions to the the normal exclusion which we utilize in practice, which is the written loan agreement. But those exclusions are also absolute exclusions. So if you fall into any one of those, it won't ever translate into an unfrank deemed dividend. So just a couple of things in, in, in closing, uh, I guess our discussion around loans is to talk to some extent what's in the offing. Because there are some significant changes in the offing, earmarked for 1 July 2018, relevant specifically to loans in Division 7A. Um, so what had happened was the Board of Taxation, which is now seen and viewed as some sort of governing authority that gets charged with making changes uh, to uh, tax legislation and suggesting changes and recommendations to Treasury for changes to tax legislation. Um, so that's pretty much their brief. Um, and so they got charged with the task of looking at how we can overhaul Division 7A. And they put forward a number of recommendations to government uh, in 2016. Um, in fact, their first recommendations came through in 2012, and it's just been a work in progress. But they put forward a set of 15 recommendations as their final uh, white paper to government. And the government had, in last year's budget, or I should even say in the 2016 budget, had accepted what the Board of Taxation had recommended. We don't have any draft legislation in place yet, but it was already in the federal budget earmark for promulgation with effective date 1 July 18. And so what are these changes that will be encapsulated in legislation? The first change, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, there will no longer be a requirement for a formal written loan agreement anywhere. Okay, So the fact that you book it as a loan on your balance sheet is enough evidence that it is a loan. So I think a lot of uh, accountants out there will applaud that. We'll applaud that. And I can imagine there would have been a lot of backdating with respect to this mm. point. 
Of course, there'd, there'd be a lot of um, falling over feet trying to make this thing work and uh, because it su was such a peremptory requirement in the whole scheme of things. So that just falls away. Um, the second element is relevant to the repayments on the loan. Now, remember I said to you, the loan repayments would comprise principal and interest, and the interest component would be based on a benchmark interest rate, which is a moving target every year. What will now happen is the interest rate on a loan will be set at the beginning of the term of the loan, and it won't change. It will be fixed for the entirety of the loan at that rate. And it has to be the official interest rate at that time. Well, it's the rate that's the Reserve Bank indicator lending rate for small business. On that day. That's the rate, yes, on that day. And it's fixed for the entirety of the loan term. So this gives a little bit of certainty um, and, um, and, and it's a good outcome. Uh, so that's to be applauded too. But the even more concessional aspect is the repayments of the loan on the loan itself. I said earlier, currently under the law, the loan term is either seven years, if it's unsecured, maximum term, or 25 years if it's secured against real property. All Division 7A loans from 1 July 18 will be 10-year loans, secured or unsecured. Because I think that's where a lot of mistakes happened The term was 25 years, mm. but not registered as a mortgage. Mm. Absolutely. So there's no longer an issue now. They've sorted out and created certainty by saying all divisions have an A loan will be 10 years. Uh, but then you say to yourself, well, what about existing divisions have an A loans? I had this loan three years ago. We've had three years of minimum repayments on this loan. When the new law kicks in 1 July 18, we're now going to have a new regime. What happens to my existing loan? Well, existing uh, seven-year loans can be then extrapolated over a 10-year term when the new rules kick in. So that's advantageous. Well, what about the 25-year loans? 25-year loans will be allowed to wash itself out over 25 years. Oh, that's good. So, so very concessional, these measures, and it's to be applauded. Um, the other aspect of the loan repayments is how we repay the loan. Now, remember... Now we have to make every year minimum repayments. We explored this a little bit earlier, that if you don't make your minimum repayment, the results in the unfrank deep dividend, all of that. What now needs to happen is under the proposals by the Board of Taxation, the government accepted, you can now have your 10-year loan, which because it will be 10 years now, uh, you can accrue the interest. Uh, you don't have to make any minimum repayments as long as you hit the following timelines. At the end of year three of your 10 years, the loan balance must be 75% of the original loan. So you only ever have to get it by the end of year three, make a payment so you get to 75% of the balance of the loan, including the interest components, of course. And then by the end of year five, 55%. 55. 55%, okay? So not 50, but 55%. And at the end of year eight, 25%. And then, of course, on the conclusion of year 10, the entirety of the balance of the loan. So this is why, as I talk to accountants about this, um, they are very excited about this particular prospect. 
because it helps with cash flow. Uh, you have a little bit more certainty in terms of your repayment structure. So very, very concessional. And this makes sense to me because when I think about this logically, I say to myself, well, all you really want to make sure is the money gets paid back to the company um, and it gets paid back at a commercial interest. It doesn't really matter um, that you hit those timelines as long as in terms of the expiry of that loan, everything goes back um, and you have a more flexible milestone to test whether that's actually happening. Now, the interesting aspect here, because we don't have the detail of the laws, what we talked about earlier, what if I don't hit my loan balance 75%, 55%, 25% at those milestones? What is the consequential effect? Now, I would suspect it would be similar to what we have now. Um, but it'll be interesting to see when they tease out the detail around this as to how that will look. But I think in principle, it's a good outcome. It's a good outcome. Um, the only negative outcome, they put in 15 recommendations and really there's only one, there's really only one that stands out as potentially posing significant adversity for tax agents, accountants and taxpayers. Division 7, as we alluded to earlier, kicked in 4 December 1997. That's when it kicked in. Um, what that meant was that any loans executed before 4 December 1997 was outside the scope of Division 7A, unless you altered it, amended it, varied it, changed it after 4 December 1997. If you just left it alone, it was outside the scope of Division 7 I see, but any alteration would have brought it into Division 7 Correct. And Correct. Seven, uh, Section 108 would no longer apply. But, Correct. Okay. Correct. So that's why we were always very careful when you had these pre-4 December 1997 loans, you quarantine it on your balance sheet. You don't touch it. You don't do anything to it. Okay. Uh, and so you'll have a lot of these companies right across Australia who would have millions and millions of dollars worth of these pre-4 December 1997 loans still sitting there on the balance sheet. And so they knew that as long as they don't touch it, they don't have a problem. But one of the Board of Taxation's recommendations is this, that from 1 July 2018, all pre-4 December 1997 loans come within the fold of Division 7A. And so you'd have to set it now over the newly prescribed 10-year term and make your minimum repayments. Um, so if there is a negative element in their recommendations to government that there might still be a lot of consternation on, it's this one. Now, the fate, it's not a fate to comply yet. There's still a lot of lobbying uh, being done by the various accounting membership bodies and professional bodies on this particular aspect. So we don't have the legislation yet, but this is a battleground. Um, this particular aspect. But the balance of the measures, as you've already noticed, uh, are very, very concessional in the outcome. But this is probably going to be one of those that will be a real sticking point uh, out, of the, out of the measures. Another one that's also a good outcome, we talked earlier about that ATO ruling in 2010 to suggest that the UPE could be a loan in itself. Uh, even if the cash doesn't come out to the shareholder. Okay. 
goes to beneficiary. But goes to someone um, or goes to a trust in which the shareholder is a beneficiary. beneficiary. Yeah. Um, so the recommendation around this is that the Board of Taxation has suggested this. They will allow an election, a once and for all election on UBS. So what can happen here is the company and the trust can elect that all the UPs between them will be loans. And therefore, if they want to fix the problem, they'd have to do a Division 7A framework type of loan. Now they won't have loan agreements required anymore, but they would still have to subject it to the, stat, the minimum repayments in those timelines that we talked about earlier. So it'll just be a normal Division 7 owner. So the company and the trust will have this choice. Treat the UP as a loan. Now, for some people, this might have the attraction of simplicity. To say, well, if it's a UP, we'll just treat it as a loan. We know how to deal with it. And after all, loans aren't as bad as they used to be in the way the minimum repayments need to happen. But the alternative to this is to say the cash that's in the trust that represents the UP is in a trust that's actually a trading trust. And the reason we've kept the cash in there, because we're keeping it in there as working capital. And if you make that election, then you don't need to treat it as a loan. But that's very concessional. That's very concessional. But there's a little bit of a sting in the tone. So it's concessional in the sense that don't treat it as a Division 7 loan. You don't have to do anything. Uh, and even if the shareholder of the company is also beneficiary of the trust, don't worry about it. Nothing happens. The only time you're going to have a problem, if that cash comes out of that trust to the shareholder, then you're going to have a problem, which is the normal Division 7A framework under Model 3 anyway. Okay, But there's a sting in the tail if you adopt the second option. This is the sting in the tail. The, for as long as that UPE cash that you say is working capital resides in that trust, that trust will be treated as if it is a company for capital gains tax purposes, which means whenever that trust sells an asset, it will no longer get the 50% general discount. That is the sting in the tail. And so, of course, you can remedy this. Why did they do that? Well, I think because, if I'm really cynical, I would suggest that the ATO felt aggrieved that after they came out with this 2010 ruling suggesting what they did, what Treasury is now doing is saying, don't worry about what the ATO said. You don't have to worry about it. It will only be a problem if the cash actually comes out. So basically knocking the ATO on the nose. And I think this is the ATO's input here to suggest that if this is no longer a problem, despite the fanfare of us putting out those rulings in 2010, then we want some take here. And this is the take. Okay. So this is only if I'm being really cynical, um, because to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, because if it's genuinely working capital, then it shouldn't fall foul of a deemed dividend outcome at all, because the trust is your trading vehicle. And unless you don't believe the trust is genuinely a trading vehicle, 
Well, if you don't believe that, you've got anti-avoidance rules under your general anti-avoidance rules to sanction that. Um, so I'm thinking it's a bit rich to have the sting in the tail here. Uh, open election, if you want to treat us alone, treat us alone. But if it's genuinely working capital, it shouldn't have a tax result unless the cash actually comes out. That's my view because that's the scope of Division 7A anyway. But anyway, this is what's now been suggested um, uh, to the government. And then there's a last element that we just talked about, which is the capacity to get a discretion from the commissioner to say it's an inadvertent error, it's an honest mistake. Now, the process under the current law is to, as I suggested, file a private ruling request to get that outcome from the commissioner. Part of the board's recommendations is that you can self-assess your problem, identify your Division 7A risk after the fact, fix it, and move on. You don't need to ask the ATO's permission to fix it. And the reason for that is that in 80% of the cases, they said yes anyway. That's right. so Absolutely. So really assess the problem, uh, even if it's after the fact, uh, quantify the extent of the problem, remedy it under the framework of the law and move on. Um, don't ask their permission and wait for them to say yay or nay. Um, and I think this is sensible law. This is sensible lawmaking. Um, as an approach. So these are significant changes. Uh, we're expecting an exposure draft bill uh, that will come out, we expect, very shortly because the date earmarked for the effective date of this legislation is 1 July 2018. So there is a lot of changes that um, accountants, taxpayers, advisors uh, need to be aware of that's in the offing for probably one of the largest areas of compliance that we focus on in our SME uh, market for Division 7A. So that takes us through uh, Division 7A and loans. Um, our next installment is to talk about Division 7A and its effect on not loans, but actual payments without any obligation to repay, actual straight-up payments that come out of a private company to shareholders and associates. That will be our next discussion point. And a large part of what we teased out just now in terms of mechanics of Division 7 and sanctioning effect would apply similarly to payments. But we'll leave that topic for our next discussion. Welcome back. So a Division 7A dividend is not frankable doesn't result in a penalty under franking debit and is also, and we didn't touch on that, is also not subject to withholding tax. So today was all about Division 7A loans. In the next episode, episode 51, Peter will talk about Division 7A payments. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <music>